Welcome to another episode of Listen Loudly. My name is Jocelyn Thompson Rule, and today I am interviewing my good friend, singer Joy Crooks. We have a really lovely conversation about her process in music and in performance. It is, as we get to at the end of the conversation, so connected to any process, whether it's a training process, whether it's a general life process of just being in the moment as much as possible, particularly when the hard work is done. So I hope you enjoy this episode and let me know what you think. Joy Crooks. Hi, babe. Hi, Josh. Thanks for having me on here. <laughs> How are you, my love? I am good. I am a bit tired because I went to Devon and drove to Devon and back in like two days. So Oof. that was pretty strenuous. How many hours is that? Like five hours each way. That is exhausting. Two hours driving is tiring. Five hours, no. Not a vibe. I know. I know. <laughs> You sit back, darling, have a coffee, whatever you need, whatever you need. And you can have a nap after this. I've got my water. This. I've got Josh okay. in front of me. Everything will be great. <laughs> Amazing. So let's go back to, we haven't known each other that long, three or four years. Is that all it's been? Yeah, I know, right? I feel like it's been longer than that. I know that we are soul sisters from the depths, but it's not been long. I'm 25, so 21 to 25 is pretty pivotal ages. This is true. This is true. Meanwhile, I'm 45 and uh, here we are. It's less of a chunk of my lifetime. (laughs) (laughs) One of my other guests, Emma Dabry, who you know, we both have these ridiculous links to one another and the same with you and I. So our first conversation on the phone, we discovered that we both Irish danced for was it 15 years? You were 15, I was 14. And the way we found out about it is because you were like, okay, before we get into training, I need to know if you have any injuries. And I was like, I don't have any specific injuries, but I did dance, specifically Irish dance for 14 years. And you were like, well, I did 15, so you'll be fine. (laughs) Was that my response? That was your response. It was pretty like savage in a great way. (laughs) And then we both have an Irish parent. So we have that link there. And then we're just generally, generally soul sisters in, in many ways. So it was very easy from the get go for us to, to work together and also become really, really good friends. So not that anybody listening to this will not know who you are, but do you want to give yourself a quick intro, what you do, who you are, all of that good stuff. I'm Joy Crooks. I'm from London and I'm a musician and sometimes a good sister and sometimes a good daughter amongst other things. And so we we started our first, I guess, interaction with one another outside of realizing that we were very similar in many, many ways, apart from the fact that I'm old enough to be your mum. Outside of that. You're not. <laughs> no, you're not. Yeah. Wait, 45 yes, minus 25. Yeah, exactly. Well, I you could, could be if you were like in my a, a teen teen mum. Yeah. That's so funny if you were my mum. You'd <laughs> be you a imagine? lit mum to me. <laughs> I'd love that. <laughs> I'm not sure I would. I'm not sure I would at all. But I started training you, which is how we connected in the first place. 
what's your relationship been to movement from the get-go? Obviously, Irish dancing was a big, big part of your life. But what's your relationship to movement been in general? I've always loved dancing. And that wasn't just Irish dancing, but anything that involved music, I was obsessed with. And I feel that to this day, even when music comes on and I feel that nervousness to dance in front of people, my instinct and urge is to dance. So dancing and music has always been a way that I have expressed. And that's in a really informal way. Like I used to dance in front of my parents and like my parents and I used to dance together. Like dancing has always been really, really important to me. I think I was always interested in exercise simply because of the wonderful effects it has on your mental health. So I used to be an athlete at school. I used to go running with my dad. Like movement's always had an important role in my life. I think the reason it's so important for me is because it's often taken me out of quite tough situations. Even Irish dancing was like respite when I was growing up. I just want to go back. You said um, a nervousness to dance. What do you mean by that? I think that people are really self-conscious about dancing. And I read somewhere... And you can mark me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure I read some research about people on their deathbeds saying that they wished that they'd danced when they had the opportunity. I think that there's just a natural like stiffness and a nervousness when you're out at a party or at a gig and you're you're kind of like bopping side to side or maybe just about dancing, but you're not really dancing the way that maybe in your head you want to. I mean, I can't speak on behalf of everyone, but I think that applies to a lot of people. And even like when you get in a relationship and you're both dancing for the first time it can be a bit like awkward and a bit embarrassing and a bit nervous and then as you both get to know each other and become more silly around each other and the crazy dance moves start coming out you know you get to reconnect with that playful child that is within all of us doesn't matter whether we're good dancers or bad dancers it's just the act of dancing Mm. and I guess it's also because to dance for the, you know, the saying we always hear without dance like no one's watching is a full expression of yourself, right? I have to say, when I hear a beat, my body just starts moving and I just, I've never actually felt a nervousness. Maybe I have in the past now that I think of it, but yes, that movement and dancing is a a full expression of yourself and therefore being a full expression of yourself with other people around can be a really, really intimidating thing. So it was just when you said nervousness, I was like, oh, that's interesting. Like, why would Joy be nervous to dance? But actually, I think loads of people have that. And it's why it's also why people drink alcohol before they dance or like there's different practices before you dance. There's substances people take so that they feel more comfortable in clubs. Like ultimately, there are things that try you try to do to loosen up in order to dance. And also you said that movement, even when you were Irish dancing, brought respite from some situations. Yeah, it definitely brought respite. For me, Irish dancing was something that I did once a week. I had a lot of family dramas, et cetera, et cetera, things that were out of my control. And the two hours at Irish dancing was kind of like this grace period in my week where I couldn't be disturbed. I was in the comfort of Mrs. Willis, Miss Mrs. Bridie Willis's arms and care and choreography. And that was my two hours a week where I was just kind of connecting with my dad. My dad used to take me there every weekend and with dancing and Irishness and Morley's chicken and chips afterwards. 
Yes, I love it. I love it. Gosh, I have to say one or two of my dancing teachers were quite intense. So I loved it. But I think I would actually, I tell a lie, again, now thinking back, it absolutely was respite sometimes, but also there, there was sometimes an intensity. I know that my younger sister, her confidence was knocked a lot from that, from what one of the teachers used to say to her, just used to sort of, you know, put her down. You're not making an effort. Are you stupid? Like just not like pay attention. And those were things that actually that she found really difficult to do, really difficult to focus. And she um, sort of looked back on that time and through reflection realized that actually that was a real moment where her confidence was was broken down at quite an early age, which is which is really sad. But like I say, she's reflected on that and now she's, you know, on the other side of it. So, but yeah, to know that that was your safe space, if you like. It wasn't, it wasn't. There were definitely, um, there was dramas there, especially because it's all like teenage girls. I struggled there because it was meant to be my safe space, but I definitely had moments where I didn't feel accepted by the girls there and... And I kind of became quite insular. So it was very much uh, myself and the Irish dancing and maybe like one friend. But yeah, the girls could be pretty mean there. So that was definitely something that I had to overcome. I mean, I feel like so many young people are like, I'm going to sing. When did you decide that was what you wanted to do? And when did you decide, actually, this is it, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for it? I don't know if I've ever had that conscious decision making. I always knew I loved music just as like a music listener and a punter. And I actually started playing instruments before I sang. For me, singing was like, it just felt like a necessity once I'd learned chords, et cetera, et cetera, on the guitar. But singing was never kind of, I guess, my main practice. Playing music was and, and learning. I learned the guitar on like a weekend when my mom went away. I just like learned from ultimate guitar tabs. And the singing was just like a, it felt like a bonus that I had to kind of do because that's what people did when they played guitar. But it wasn't, there was never a conscious, I'm a singer. I think even to this day, I have a slight imposter syndrome about the fact that I'm a singer because although in my heart of hearts, I know I'm a singer, I just think I've never really had that, oh, I'm a singer, this is me type of realisation. So when did the two come together, even if it still feels odd now when was it right actually this singing is a part of my music playing as well I think when I started to sing with the guitar and and actually specifically when I started to write music because I felt like the singing was a way to get words out funny enough no pun intended with this playlist sorry with this podcast being called listen loudly I felt like one of the only ways I could feel or be heard was to write music and to write lyrics so I would say whether I knew it or not that's probably when I became a singer because it felt like the singing was just a vessel to get a story out or to get um, how I felt out. And how old were you then? I was like the first song I wrote I was 12. Wow so you've been singing since you were 12? Yeah I think I always sang I think singing was always something I did for fun, but I think I started writing songs and I don't think, I know I started writing songs and singing when I was 12. And when did that become, right, I want to do more with this. This is what I want to do. This is my calling, if you like. If this is your calling, it may not be. 
I just had an urgency to write songs and I had an urgency to play music. I would wake up every morning and feel the need to play the guitar. I would feel like I would come back from school and be desperate to write a song. It was just the way that I felt like I could express and get out. I mean, I made my first EP when I was 18, so maybe it was then. 21 was my first album. Well, around then, I don't know. It's it's a hard one to answer, Joss. I know that when we were, so I guess it was back in 2020, one thing that I always feel is that often people can be disassociated from their bodies or disconnected from their bodies. And we went through a few different things that you could do either in your warm up or just to get more connected to your breathing. And I think in general, of many of the people that I've trained, you are very, 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 very connected to your body and how it feels. And yet focusing on the breathing, focusing on, oh, actually, it's harder for me to breathe here than it is for me to breathe there. How connected would you say you are to yourself when you are singing in terms of the kind of physical feeling, if you like? I think that I can go almost into like a meditative state when I sing. I've noticed when I watch videos back of me singing and gigs that I've really enjoyed, my eyes are kind of half closed, like I'm there but not. And I feel like the only way to describe that is like a meditation, like a hypnosis. I actually think I feel the most connected to myself when I'm not thinking. And that can be in singing, that can be in romantic activities in the bedroom. I think there are lots of moments where we have an ability to connect with our bodies and the the connection is so strong that we're not even aware of it in the moment. And I think actually those are the times I feel the most connected to my body. Amazing. So when, when we take the thought process out of it and I get and I suppose athletes would call it flow if you like where you're just not it's just it's just happening to you creators would call it flow yeah it's just happening you can't necessarily like say how you're feeling in that moment you're just in that moment that you're there and that might sound a little bit cheesy but that's flow state is probably the for me the most connected state any one human could feel within their bodies And do you do anything to get yourself there? I mean, in the sense that, you know, you said now looking back, if you see like videos of yourself singing and you can see that you're in a state that you wouldn't necessarily know that you were in at the time because you're very much in it and out of your thoughts. Is there anything that you do to try and prepare yourself to be there or get there, particularly for a performance? I think there's a sweet spot of caring and not caring. I know that sounds really strange, but I, I, I trained this morning and I actually had it this morning where in the moments I feel like I care the least, that can really help me go into flow state because it's not I'm not clutching to thoughts or clutching to thoughts that will naturally pass through my mind. I'm allowing them to pass. And I know that's the same with meditation. I know that's the same with Mainly the best thing I can compare it to is meditation because that's flow state as well. But it's not eradicating what's going on in your mind. It's just accepting that it's all there. And then it has suddenly a lot less of an effect on you. And whatever you're doing in that moment can 
can be in that moment and, and you're present and you're there. And I think that if I had the answer to how I connect to that, I would be doing it all the time. But I think it's realizing how it feels is a huge part of getting to that flow state. Things about flow state is you don't have any, you don't have any urgency. So you're not hungry. There's there's not an appetite thing when you're in flow state. You don't you're not thinking about whether you need to wee or not. Flow state is like this ultimate, almost peaceful state of being. And um, I don't know. I think that it's like a it's it's almost apathy helps me get there. Not caring too much, just kind of being. Yeah, which re- requires a huge level of self-trust. Yeah, but it's also like knowing that in some ways, although we have so much meaning, we have so little, like we don't mean it. It doesn't, it's not a big deal. It doesn't mean anything, which is true and not true. It's really hard to explain. I think that when I feel like I'm just there on stage and I'm not necessarily connecting with people, I'm not necessarily trying to shove my lyrics or songs down anyone's throats. I'm not trying to overly perform. I am just existing. And whether you like it or not, isn't really my problem. That gets me into flow state much quicker. But there is an element of not caring. Yeah. Which sounds weird because obviously you do. You do. Yes. No, no, absolutely. You do care. But there is no point in adding additional energy to something that already is there. So, you know, you've already written those songs. So that work, in the sense, is done. You're just then repeating the work or singing the songs. And actually, if you have a, I suspect if you went on to, if you went on stage and you were like, please let everyone love this, please let everyone love this, it completely would switch up the energy of what you're able to then deliver. So to go out, and I remember an old, an old, an old coach of mine used to say to me, say if I was lifting, before the lift, this is your think space. And then when I'm in the lift, this is your workspace. So that's when the thinking comes out of it. Like, don't be thinking about what you're doing because the thoughts are going to get in the way of the actual work, of the actual process, of the actual flow. And and it, it doesn't, it, it, you know, you saying going out there and, and, and kind of leaning into apathy, it doesn't sound like you don't give a damn. It just sounds like you've got to then just let whatever happens happen. When I say you have to be almost small and meaningless, I don't mean that in a way that's punitive or like you lack self-esteem or self-worth. I think what I mean by that is you are just a very small part of a much larger process or a much larger thing. Like, I think understanding that, which which sounds weird because I'm a musician and I'm someone that's like public facing, etc. But I actually think that the the more I think I'm part of something bigger, the more I think collectively, the easier it is to connect, the easier it is to connect with myself. I don't get lost as fast, if that makes any sense. So your sort of small part, even though, again, we're not looking at it as a small thing, but your small part in a bigger existence, I suppose. Then there's also less pressure on you somehow to, do you know what I mean? It, and I know exactly what you're saying by by making yourself small, like in the most positive way, you're less of a big deal. So you can just exist and you can just do what you're doing in the best possible way. Yeah. And I think if you can think about that, even when you're not performing, when you're just literally existing, it's one of the most important ways 
to, I think for me, one of the most important reminders is that you are just a small part of something much larger. And so it also, you know, when you say that, it makes me think that you can go, right, well, if I'm this very small, again, not insignificant part, but if I'm this very small part, then actually if I'm doing you, good and I'm ways, doing in things. In some ways you are. Because if you really think about it from a super macro lens, if you're thinking about it from literally outer space or when you go to, when I go to Bangladesh or maybe when you've been to the Caribbean or whatever, realities exist everywhere. And my reality doesn't mean it's it's more or less than someone else's, although they could be massively contrasting. I think realizing that you are somewhat insignificant makes everything so much easier and easy to connect on stage, you know, going back to, to performance. Yep, this is what I do. I really enjoy making music. I connect with the music. I didn't make it for you as much as you might be enjoying it. Didn't actually end up making it for you in the first place. So now this is my opportunity to connect. And if I mess up, if I sing the wrong line, if I don't hit the note, it doesn't matter because actually I'm just here to be here right now. I don't know if that's making sense, but I think that, that the in- insignificance is really important. No, it makes perfect sense. And I think that where I was going with it, the kind of insignificant part was that you can also, in your insignificance, just do the best that you can and, you know, do good where you can as contributing to it to part of a of a bigger whole. And let's move a bit further forward to... I guess when you've been on tour, your most recent tour, when was your most recent tour? When did, when, when did that finish up? It would have been March last year. Well, no, April last year. April, I did Coachella. So I did like four dates. It wasn't a long tour at all. And one of the things that we spoke about movement-wise was, I think the most important part was you taking walks. Yes. Yeah. And and walking is one of the most underrated forms of exercise that exists on the planet, in my opinion, because people think it's easy. So, you know, why would I do that? But talk to me a little bit about about that, because we didn't there were there are a few we, we had a few different bits that you were able to do here and there. But but the overriding or overarching movement that we we talked about you doing was was simply going for walks. I think that also there were times where I was assigned walking because my body was under a lot of stress, a lot of tension, and walking was just so much more viable. And it also gave me a lot of clarity in those days that I would walk or do really long walks. I remember when I'd been through breakups or really difficult moments with work or family, I walk a lot. (laughs) I do a lot of walking. I mean, it's easy, first and foremost, you can do it anywhere. Even if there isn't much of a view, view, you'll always find something to observe when you're walking. And I think that it's a really great opportunity to be able to sift through thoughts. And it reminds yourself that you're giving yourself some you time. And, you know, I enjoyed going out for a walk with myself because it was time I got to spend with myself. And even if I didn't instantly feel the effects of the walk when finishing it, it in some way, shape or form made sense later. And that's the thing, right? I think for the most part, when you're walking, you're in the moment, you're generally not walking with your head 
down in your phone is actually it's it's a break so coming back to you talking about you know movement has been really important for your for your mental health it's not just that walking is this thing that is accessible for for many people not everyone but it's, it's certainly accessible for many people but i think the impact that it has is so much greater mentally specifically is so much greater and that if everybody had the opportunity to do that more the insights i think that come from just taking a walk and as you say you didn't even necessarily realize it at the time but later on in the day it would come back to you as to to why you did that and the benefit of it and then so what's what's happening this year for joy 2024 I am wrapping up my second album, which I'll start releasing songs from this year. I don't know when yet, but I will. And I want to start my third album as soon as possible. I want to do some traveling. I know that I will end up traveling because of music, but a new goal for me is to travel. Even if it's not far, I just want to exist in different realities as much as possible I'm privileged enough to do so and and that means a lot to me even being able to get in my car and go to Devon you know there's so much agency involved in that and and it makes me feel good it's a good reminder for me that I can get up and go so a personal goal is that but yeah releasing music this year trying to be a good sister stuff like that (laughs) (laughs) And what's the what's the process of writing an album? Because I see, you know, on your and obviously, you know, I I know when we're in touch on your Instagram, you're you're in the studio, you're working, 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 working from start to finish. What is the process? And I ask you this because I feel that the process that you would go through to write an album includes some frustration, a lot of mundane, repetitive work, moments of elation, lots of things all combined, but you have to have this continued focus on the end result. So, and I'm sure from album to album, it's completely different as well. Like maybe, you know, writing your first one was different to to writing your second. What is that process? The process is long. That's the first part of the process is understanding that it's not, you are not going to have results in a day or a week or sometimes not even in a year. It involves so much faith and patience and it involves connection. And that's connection with yourself, connection if you write with people, your co-writers, connection with your producers, connection with those songs. You know, you'll be working on songs sometimes for years and you need to still somewhat feel the seed that you planted years before you're at the point that you're at with that song. There's meticulous things like needing to change vocals, needing to change a lyric, feeling like a lyric doesn't suit. There's wonderful moments where the song just pops out of nowhere and it's quick and easy and almost flow state. There are moments where the flow state feels a million miles away There are things, whether you want to admit them or not, there are social pressures. I think for a female musician, pressures of image, there's pressures of the songs being commercially viable. There's the pressures of music and the the digestion 
and the accessibility of music constantly shifting and changing in the way that music quote unquote works now in the age of social media and the age of people not really buying CDs anymore, people not really being interested in albums as much as they used to be. You know, there's so much, you're constantly moving with change. You're also trying to stay connected to yourself and you're also trying to stay faithful. You know, it's, it's a very, making an album is one hell of a process. <laughs> you know, I don't have the step-by-step guide. I can say the thing I care about massively is songs. I care about a song being good to my standard. I care about not polishing a turd, polishing that something that's there and that I wanted to say and I wanted to get out, whether that was a deep thing or really, really insignificant thing. It just feels like an important nugget of my life immortalized into song. And then going from there into the process of finishing an album, which is, it's a storm, you know, and, and don't get me wrong, there are some storms that have absolutely beautiful moments and there are not all storms that devastate your house there are storms that wipe away dust from plants there are storms where there's rainbows and rain and sunshine all at the same time it's such a journey and I'm grateful that I'm an album making artist but it's album making is a you learn a lot about yourself as well in that long process, obviously you know that it's a long road. You've you've said that, and, and specifically for for albums, how do you keep the focus to keep going? I think I keep the focus because I, I'm, my manager will probably say this, and she said this actually a few times. I don't have like a choice. I have to make music. I have to use that as my main source of expression it's my vocation and there's not really you know there are times where I have to be patient there are times where I really need my therapist and really need to be keeping an eye on my mental health to be keeping an eye on my work ethic to be keeping keeping an eye on the team and the deadlines and the routine etc but that's how I keep the focus for sure it's probably mainly routine, mainly routine, and knowing that the routine has to exist because for me, I don't have a choice. Me, like I, my purpose is music. My purpose is uh, storytelling. That's an instinctual thing, you know. Yeah. So, so that it's your it's your passion. It's your purpose. So that in many ways leads you, and then you've got the million moving parts that you've just mentioned <laughs> that you have to keep a tab on on all of those. What have the big learnings been along the way? So you're one album in so far, you're working on the second one now. What have you what have you taken with you so far? I would say that I don't know, I kind of obsessed with this point about apathy that we were speaking about earlier, but I think as you get older you and and the more you exist in your industry or your career or even if it's a hobby, whatever it is that you're passionate about. I think you realize that in order to keep the connection with that passion, there has to be boundaries, there has to be no's, there has to be, as much as there's compassion, there has to be some apathy, there has to be sometimes disconnection with people or things that can get in the way of the connection to to the music or to the source, to the flow. So for me, what I've learned in the last two years is 
when I thought someone was really important or when I thought that I can't do it by myself or when I've thought that the process was hard, reminding myself that I will always have the passion to make and want to make great music without any of those people, with or without those people. I suppose you think that you need certain people to be able to do whatever you're doing at in that moment or at that stage. But then at some point you also come back to yourself and you say, okay, well, even, you know, this person made it happen in, in this way. But if they weren't there, it would have happened maybe in a different way, but it still would have, would have happened. And I think for me, that always feels like a, a coming back to yourself like this kind of like, I always knew it was always there. It was always deep inside. Like I feel very, very lucky, much like yourself to, to be able to work my passion. And I hate the saying, do what you love and you'll never work another day in your life. That's absolute bollocks because you do work exceptionally hard still. You're protecting the thing that you love. So much of doing what you love is protecting it. That's the hardest part. That's the thing in the last two years that has been one of the roughest lessons I've learned is that when you love something that much, you will do anything to protect it and that can burn bridges in relationships. It can burn bridges in all sorts of places that you never thought would be burnt. And that's sad because it's, there's a lot of grief involved in that process. The passion stays and the, and, the, and the direction stays, but the landscape is constantly changing. That's probably the, the biggest lesson, the hardest thing I've learned recently. I read a, co- a quote recently, I think it was a James Clear quote, and it said, uh, and I felt like it was so true, that in this sense, he said it, you're not focused enough, but I would say you're not protecting your passion enough if you are not mourning some of the things that you're letting go, because it is hard to sometimes go, as you say, like it's difficult to do that. It's difficult to let either relationships go or whatever go as you're trying to protect the asset of your, of your passion. And actually when I, when I heard that, I would switch that round to you're not protecting your passion enough or your devotion enough if you're not mourning some of the things that you're letting go of. So in order to continue the focus that you have on the thing that you love the most, you have to let go of some other things which are going to be quite hard to let go of and you're going to feel a bit shitty about letting go of them or you're going to feel bad or guilty about letting go go of them. And I remember having a, a, a conversation with a friend of mine and he was asked to do something that was not really his vibe, just wasn't him. And it was easy to know that the thing wasn't him and that he didn't want to do it. The hard thing was saying no to the people around him. He was feeling that emotional guilt of, of saying no. And that was, you know, that was, I relayed that quote back to him and he was like, that's exactly it. I know I don't want to do that thing, but it's the people that I feel I'm letting down in saying no. And that was a purely emotional pull because actually the thing could have carried on without him but he just felt bad about saying no in the in the first place I mean I couldn't relate to that more some of the lessons that I've learned this year and this is a conversation I had with another one of my guests have been through other people this year so it hasn't been an experience that I have directly had but it has often been the actions of somebody else who I have then been pulled into when it's been a them issue 
rather than a me issue. But actually right now for me, my learnings are coming through others in that way. So I'm kind of like, okay, is this what we're doing this year? That's cool. That's cool. That's how we're learning. Being vicarious. There's also the saying that no is a full sentence. And I think that no is, is yes, it is a full sentence, but not everyone can say no easily. You have to practice saying no. And sometimes there's just not, you can't say no. But I do think the more you then practice letting go of the things that will impact you protecting your your purpose or your passion, the better you get at saying no. So what was hard to say no to five years ago becomes an easy no today or or next year. Yeah, it's the practice of that um, muscle. Yeah. The more you try and protect things, the more you try and protect that passion, the harder it gets. And maybe, yeah, the more people you you lose along the way. But there's a quote, and I don't know who, I don't know who said this quote, I can't remember now, but it was, I would rather be hated for who I am than loved for who I am not. And that's easier, again, said than done. But I think some of the, you know, greatest that's, activists that's of our time would, yeah, are definitely living examples of that or, you know, are no longer here. So, so interesting. It's hard. It's hard to, to do, but I certainly wouldn't have it any other way. And I feel like you're the same. Me neither. <laughs> and so this podcast is called Listen Loudly, because I believe that you should listen loudly to yourself in order to be heard by others. Is there a moment that you listened loudly to yourself in order to be heard by others? That was a pivotal point for you. I think listening loudly is just the process of my songwriting. My best songs are when I felt like I've listened to myself with a fine tooth comb. And it's only been, you know, I've, I've really tried to listen. And then I've managed to turn that into a song and, and comprise that memory into a, a story, you know, and something that I can connect to and live with forever. So I think that listening loudly to be heard, I mean, it's literally what I do. Yeah. So each each album is a set of moments in which or experiences in which you listened loudly to yourself in order to be heard by others. And then they live on forever, those reminders for you, because you, you know, often uh, lyrics are broken down and, you know, song meanings. Often if I'm, if I'm, you know, if I'm playlisting for work, if it's a, a specialist class or something like that, I will look at the lyrics. I will look at sometimes the meaning of the, of the lyrics, but as an artist, no one knows the meaning of those lyrics better than, than you do, no matter how, how we interpret them. And yet they can have so much meaning for, for us listening to them. We have then connections to ourselves or in fact, it enables us to listen loudly to ourselves when hearing your, your lyrics. So, so you're listening loudly. Let's us listen loudly, Joy. I'm into it. It's true. I think that that's been one of the most fortunate parts of the job is having these songs to be able to express how I'm feeling in the most vulnerable and personal way personal way obviously however anyone else interprets that can make them hear something I don't but the songs have made me feel heard even if I haven't necessarily been heard in that situation the story is out for me you know if I'm writing about an ex or a friend or or a situation it's not about whether I've been heard by that person it's the fact that I heard myself and I be that good or bad I heard myself I try to look in and learn. And that's a, that's a processing in a way, isn't it, of the situation? I have one more question 
And I just think it's interesting because I think it was so cool. When you toured your first album, you did this really cool thing where you were on Instagram and you were like, hi guys, I'm going to be here at this time. Want to come in a park somewhere or whatever? And I remember both BJ and I were just like, that is so genius. And it felt old school and it felt different and it felt unique. Just tell me about it because I think it's cool. I wanted to set up free gigs because I've always been obsessed with like guerrilla tactics in marketing. I've always been obsessed with accessible marketing. Like not everyone has the money to turn up to a show. Not everyone is the right age to turn up to a show. Things aren't accessible for people for multiple reasons. So as well as doing shows in venues and, you know, that are ticketed events, blah, blah, blah. I like the spontaneity and the punk nature of just rocking up somewhere and being like, I'm going to be here. I don't know what I'm going to be singing, but I guess I'll see you there. And creating more informality and more accessibility because I think that celebrity culture and just like music culture or like artist to listener culture can be quite Hollywoodified. And I just think that music is something that should always be accessible and gigs should always be accessible. Um, And it's fun. And it's not, it's, there's no formalities. You know, we don't, we, we rock up and we don't even know what we're singing. I just ask people, what do you want to hear next? I used to play in pubs, in Irish pubs and play in the subway in Elephant and Castle. Like I've always had an ability to be spontaneous with where I performed and how I performed. And I think that that was important to continue in marketing of an album. Well, it was really cool and I love it. And I feel like I am, as you know, um, not very up and coming on what is good and what is new, but I felt like I hadn't seen that before. And it did feel different and it was accessible and it was just this fun thing and this relaxed thing, which is you say, like the, the, what did you call it? The Hollywoodification of, of music. It's not that you're like, hi guys, I'm going to be here. Come and see me if you're available and bringing back this brilliant spontaneity. Yeah, and and loads of people wouldn't have a clue what was going on either. I'd be performing in places where people were just walking by. That natural connection to music that is relaxed and isn't forced and it's it's free. It's probably what we should all be doing way more. Yeah, well, people just enjoy being present, I suppose, and just enjoying a time and dropping everything to go yeah I'm gonna be here that sounds fun I don't do that enough to just go that'll be a vibe that'd be a a fun thing to do so yeah I just wanted to to chat through that because I thought that was cool well Joy thank you so much for coming on here thanks for having me okay it's so so nice to particularly the apathy thing and leaning into that as a way to be relaxed because we can hold on so much to things. I use that word lightly because I don't want people to conflate apathy with completely not caring. I mean, there is so much care, but it's about knowing where to put that care and where to Mm -hmm. savor that care for something that's more important or where to just not spend that care. Giving less of a shit is the best way to put it. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But it it completely makes sense how you say it to sort of not put this pressure on yourself because actually when when you don't do that, you get so much more out of that. Yeah, and there's less expectation. 
there's less expectation. You can just enjoy a moment. You you can enjoy the moment yourself. And so when you're enjoying it, everybody you else is enjoying it. easier too. Yeah, yeah. I interviewed a footballer last month. He plays for Liverpool and he kept on coming back to, I just don't overthink it. I don't overthink it. I was saying, you know, do you have a, you know, because you hear the pregame routine, morning routine, da, 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 all of this, like, how can I be the best I can be? And he's like, I don't overthink anything. I don't overthink anything. And he kept, I, he might have said that 10 times in the interview. And the same thing actually with, with uh, Lucy. I think, I think you, you have episode. to not overthink as a footballer. There's so much pressure all around you when you play football. There's like the fans, there's the whoever's funding the team, there's the coach, the you know, the manager, like the medics. Like it's and there's so much money is involved in that industry too. It's so much pressure. I completely get why someone that works in that field would say, Yeah, I'll just try not to overthink it. Because even if you start, if you started thinking about it, it would just blow, it would overwhelm. Yeah, be too much. Exactly. Yeah. It's a separation between the work you put in. So whether that's for you, that however long that takes to write that album and all of the, the pieces that come together for this. And then the actual performance, which is beyond even the recording of the album, that's you then going and performing on stage. And for someone like him, it's the preparation that he puts in training and then the performance out on the out on the pitch. And, you know, the thinking goes into the prepping the album and the thinking goes into the training, but then you just are in that flow state when you're performing, when you're singing, when he's on the pitch. So yeah, just just really, really interesting to think of those two as, as separate. But thank you so very much for being on Listen Loudly. You are a special star in my world. And I feel like we haven't, because we always get into the deep depths of flipping whatever is going on in our lives when we see each other. We never have actually spoken. I don't think I've ever spoken to you about, right, I'll say, oh, how's it going? You're like, I'm in the studio. You say to me, how's it going? Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm recording today, whatever. But actually, we haven't had this conversation, yeah. so that's been nice. <laughs> we know how to chop it up. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah.